you're listening to audio from the West End Community Church in McGregor, Manitoba. Probably around, uh, I don't know, three or four or five. Uh, honestly, can't remember why. Had to be older than that. I, why would I remember that? Am I not working? I'm good? All right. Um... Yeah, when I was a little boy, what happened in the gospel chapel in, in Vanderhoof was on Christmas Day, they always had a Christmas Day service, and uh, my parents always made us go to the Christmas Day service, always, and uh, did I mention always? Yeah. Um, anyway, the, uh, the pastor, I remember when I was a kid, he would always, on Christmas Day, he would call up all the children and uh, he, would, uh, he would have a microphone, and uh, he would ask all the kids what they got for Christmas. You know, what was one thing that they got for Christmas, of course. And so they go all the way around. And uh, I'm up at the front, and uh, these situations really stress me out, if I'm being honest. Um, because I wasn't sure what to say, and, and I wasn't sure what you know, which one of the gifts that I had, should I say that I got pajamas? Should I say that I got this? Or, you know, like this, this was going through my mind. And so that Sunday, uh, that Christmas, I got, uh, I just saw this in the shed just this week. Um, I got this little set and there was like a boat, uh, like a, uh, it was a boat. Uh, and there was a Jeep and there was a helicopter, like these, these really cool little toys or whatever. And uh, the boat floated and all this. It was awesome. Anyway, the Jeep, I didn't know exactly what the word for Jeep was. I was like three, right? And uh, so um, I don't know why I settled on the Jeep that I was going to tell him that I got, but that's what I settled on. And so he comes to me and he holds the microphone. He said, Myron, what did you get? And all I could say was a green thing. That's all I said. Uh, I got a green thing. My brother, to this day, still mentions that story. I mean, he has never let me forget it. He is, he's mean. Um, but it, it, that, I was just out there, and I was listening to Hannah and Carissa sing, and, and, and that story came to me because uh, Claudette, was talking about this verse in 2 Corinthians this a couple weeks ago. Um, and she was talking about um, where, it's, where Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And is that me that's doing that? What if I take my jacket off? Let's try it. Everybody can see my colorful shirt. Um, nope. All right. Back to the pulpit. Sigh. All right. I'm just going to turn it off. Go to the pulpit. All right. Good. So, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Um, and that got me thinking about gifts and you know and 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 christmas like it or not is you know a, a good portion of christmas is about gifts right and yet we at church 
doesn't matter where you go, you'll hear this you'll you'll hear the the message of you know, don't forget the real message of Christmas, and 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 surely we won't. I mean, we we are reminded about it all the time. But gift giving is a part of Christmas, and and that's okay. Let, let's be honest. The giving and the receiving of gifts is is a good. Uh, these are, those elicit some really good memories. But at the same time, we do need to remember the real message of Christmas. We do want to make sure that we never forget the indescribable gift. And so that's what I want to talk about for this December. This is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about giving thanks to God for the indescribable gift, for his indescribable gift. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, um, we're going to look at Christmas um, according to Paul. Okay, and so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of drop in in a few different places in Paul's letters to the churches where he pauses. Uh, you will find that he will, be, he will be writing and then all of a sudden he will, remarkably, he will pause to wonder at the fact that God became a man in order that he might redeem us through his blood. And so today... What I want us to do is to get started, I want to turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we are just going to look at one verse, just one verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Before we begin, uh, I would be uh, honored if you would pray with me. Would you do that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we can spend together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. And I pray that you would, um, you would let your word just um, be so relevant. We know that it is. Uh, but we just pray that, that the things that you teach us today through your word and by your spirit would would just be something that, that we can take and, and we can use uh, for your glory in our workplace, in our school, in our homes. I thank you for the attention that we can make um, on your word. And, and I, God, I thank you for this place. I thank you for this time of year. And uh, Lord, may we be attentive to your words this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christmas is, uh, as, as we said, it's a time of giving. It's a time of receiving. Uh, it's a great season of... It's a great season of generosity, really. And, and I know that it can get a bit out of hand. I actually, <laughs> I actually saw a stat this week. This is quite something. Uh, Americans, I don't know what the stat is for Canada obviously be lower because there's less people, but Americans will spend over one trillion, that's with a T, one trillion dollars on Christmas presents this year. Does that not seem crazy? I'm not sure what the stats are, obviously, for Canada, but, but we know that, suffice to say, that there is a abundance certainly in, in first world countries in the West. 
there is an overflow of giving. And we, I mean, we can even call it generosity, right? I mean, people love to give gifts at Christmas. But let me ask you this. Why do you think that is? Where does the impulse to give come from? Because I think that the impulse to give is buried quite deep into our cultural psyche. It is hardwired into our thinking. Just stick with me here. Uh, I mean, a full historical study of giving of gifts at Christmas, that's not where we want to go today. It's not our purpose. But I would like to suggest that for many, for Christians in particular, the impulse flows from the story of Christmas. And in 2 Corinthians, when Paul is writing to that church, to the Corinthian Christians, he is concerned with encouraging them to, uh, well, in chapter 8, he's encouraging them to be generous. He's encouraging them to give to those who are in need and to give to the work of the gospel. And in the midst of of that chapter and in the midst of that encouragement to give he he suddenly turns and he he wants them to consider the generosity of God and within that he gives us what i think is one of the i think one of the most wonderful summaries of the message of christmas um it's certainly one of the best messages or one of the best summaries of Christmas in any of Paul's writings. But I think that we could even say that it is one of the best summaries in the entire Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, this is what it says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty uh, might become rich. So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's where we want to go. That's what we want to focus on, just that verse. I'm going to read it for you again. For, the, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Might I suggest to you the greatest lesson in generosity that the world has ever known or has ever seen is the lesson that is taught to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The lesson that he taught us when he came into this world and that he, when he lived among us and then ultimately when he died for us and for our sake. If you were here last week, we talked about John chapter 8 and we talked about grace. I mean, that was really the, the, the big idea, grace. And the summary word that Paul uses here in 2 Corinthians is the same idea. I mean, that's what he says. Verse 9, for you know the grace. That's where, he, that's where he stops, right there. Everything hinges on that. For you know the grace. Grace is, as we said last week, it's a great Bible word, isn't it? 
the definition we talked about last week, it is undeserved kindness. It is unmerited favor. And you know that in our world today, one of the messages that you will hear is this. If you work hard, this is a message that uh, this has Ben Friesen written all over it. Uh, if you work hard and you give your best, if you give your utmost, good things will come. Basically, work hard and, and you will get what you earn, right? Good things often come to those who work for them, who deserve them. And that mentality is, is good. Don't get me wrong. It, it, it teaches us, a, it teaches us a, a solid work ethic, does it not? Sure it does. There's no question about that, but let me just ask you, isn't it great that that's not how God operates? Isn't it great that, that the mentality of, of reaping what you sow or, or getting what you earn, that's not the way God operates. With us, he operates not on the basis of merit, but of grace. It has nothing to do with merit. And so today, what I want us to consider together is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace that Paul says to... He, he says that the Corinthians know it. He says, for you, the Corinthians, and you, West Enders, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that each and every one of us who is here today knows that grace. Not just knows about it, but knows it. Has received it. That undeserved kindness, that unmerited favor. Perhaps you don't know it yet. But I really want you to consider this grace as Paul, as he summarizes it for us so, so uh, succinctly, so simply for us. It's, it's more almost of a narrative. It's a story that is told briefly in just one verse. In the most succinct yet the most poignant terms, Paul says it starts with the glories of heaven, right? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich. That's where it starts. The grace, this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich. It starts in heaven. This is where it begins. It starts in heaven itself with the glory and the angels and the throne and the beauty and everything that we know about heaven and everything that we don't know. That's where this story starts. In eternity past, in heaven. We all know... Um, we all know, or at least we know of, Princess Diana... Uh, she left us a long time ago, 1997-ish, I think. Um, but when she was alive, she was known as the people's princess. She won the hearts of millions 
around the world, and she became known as the People's Princess. That was her moniker. Although she was born by earthly standards uh, of nobility, she lived in palaces, she traveled in luxury, although she had royalty, uh, for some reason, she had a common touch. And later on in her life, before she passed, uh, before she died in the car crash, she spent time with orphans, and she spent time with widows, and she spent time in the world's poorest community. She laid her hands on lepers. She removed the stigma of being with AIDS sufferers. She even walked. Uh, she even walked in a field full of active landmines to highlight their destructive and maiming power. So while she could have spent time touring the presidential palaces and the royal houses of the world, she uh, preferred so often to, to set that aside, to come alongside the poor and the needy so that she might help them. And the world loved her for it. The world loved her. Princess Diana's visits to the poor and the needy were moving and they were significant and the world loved her and they were, they were praiseworthy. But the story, in contrast, of the descent of heaven's royal son is a story of a different order because he came from a place of even greater splendor than Princess Diana. Jesus spoke of enjoying glory with his father before time began, before the world was made. And in various places in the Bible, you can look and you can read. We get this glimpse, uh, John chapter 1, for instance. We get this glimpse of the glory of the dwelling place of God. I mean, think about, think about Isaiah. Isaiah. Um, he's given a vision of the Lord in his glory in chapter 6. We, we, we talked about this passage uh, a number of years ago. But this is what Isaiah says about the vision that he has of heaven's throne room. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here's what we know about heaven. We know that heaven is a place of no, there, where there is no sin. We know that there is, uh, there is no conflict there. There is no animosity. There is no meanness. There is no illness. There is no frailty. There is no death. It is a place of joy. It is a place where God himself dwells. And the Lord Jesus Christ spent eternity past enjoying the glory of his fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. He dwelt in, in what the Bible calls unapproachable light. He was attended by angels. He lived in splendor. He was rich. He was rich in every sense of the word rich. 
He had the universe at his disposal. He had heaven as his home. The Father and the Spirit were his constant companions. And the angels were his ever-ready service. And the, so the idea that Jesus left that, he left his heavenly home for the stable and for the manger. It's, that idea is woven into the Christmas carols that we sing, isn't it? I, I was kind of searching um, Christmas carols and, and I found one that I had never heard before it, but it's called See Amid the Winter Snow maybe some of you have heard it but li- listen to the words in, in this Christmas carol Low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies he who throned in height sublime sits amid the cherubim sacred infant all divine what a tender love was thine, thus to come from highest bliss down to such a world as this. You see, you see what he's saying? It's the story of the incarnation. It's the story of Jesus leaving all that he had to come here. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich. But that's not where Paul stops because he keeps going. Did you see it? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, listen, yet for your sake he became poor. The story of Christmas bursts onto the pages of human history. And it is not a palace, it is not a castle, it is not a throne room, it isn't a chamber of government. It is a stable. It is a place of simplicity, even in poverty. A young couple, the story goes, traveled from their home in Nazareth to the town of Bethlehem. And they they had gone there to be counted in the census as required by law, even though the mother was expecting a child any day. And we know how the story goes, right? We we know that there was no room. We know that they found themselves staying the night in a stable. And we know that this young woman gave birth there in that stable that night. And the baby who was born to her was heaven's prince. The very son of God. And suddenly the prince of heaven was now the son of a working man the son of human parents, the son of, the son of peasants, the son of poor people. Jesus wasn't born in a hospital. He, he wasn't born in a home. He wasn't even born in an inn. He was born in a barn. A man by the name of Frank Houghton wrote a hymn with these words in it. He says, Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Is that not the story of Christmas? We marvel when a princess leaves her palace and interacts with the poor. 
We esteem a celebrity who even for a brief time takes up the cause of, a need, of the needy for a season, uh, often for the cameras to see or for Instagram to celebrate or, or, or whatever it is. But here we are, and here we know when we read through the pages of the Bible, we have the one who was rich beyond anything that we can ever imagine, beyond all splendor, becoming poor in every sense, becoming poor in the bare fact of becoming human and entering into the world as a man. He joined us in the mess of life. On planet earth and he joined us in the frailty and the limitation of human flesh i mean that's one step of his impoverishment right his poverty but it's not the end of it more than that he became socially and economically poor when he left heaven, he became ordinary. He became unremarkable. He became this guy who lived in a backwater. He lived in an ordinary place among ordinary people. And that's how he lived. He worked with his hands. He labored as a carpenter. He traveled later on in his life as a teacher. And he spent his time among the marginalized. He spent his time among the low of the society. The diseased, the demon-possessed. I mean, you get the picture, right? And even worse than that, it wasn't just that he was socially and and economically ordinary like the rest of people but later on in his life it became worse for him because he became not just an outcast but an outright criminal he was treated as a criminal and as an outlaw even though he had done nothing wrong and he had committed no crime he was arrested and then ultimately later on he would be beaten and he would eventually be hung on a cross to die with no possessions of any kind, with nothing in this world to lay claim to. And on that cross, a new dimension of poverty. Not, not only was he born, left the splendor of heaven and became human, that, that showed his poverty. Not only did he become socially and economically ordinary, that showed his poverty too, but later on, when he hung on the cross, this new and maybe the worst part of his poverty came to fruition. Because it wasn't just the way the world viewed Jesus, but at some point it became all about how the Father viewed him, right? Because his good standing, the good standing that he had in eternity past, it was taken away from him. And he was made spiritually poor. I mean, here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not, con did not consider, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself... 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only had Jesus identified himself with, with you and with me in a, um, in, in, in a physical situation, in, in our bodies, he became human, right? He became a human being, but he also now identified himself with us in our spiritual situation. As guilty people, as sinful people, as a lost people. The Bible tells us that Jesus hung on that cross, and as he hung on the cross, he took upon himself all our sin and all our guilt. And he hung there before the Father as one who was guilty, as one who was covered in sin. He became, he became the very object of the judgment of God. And on the cross, he became, he became profoundly poor. Because he stood in our place. And he paid the price of our guilt. And so Jesus, as he hung there in, the, in this situation of abject and complete poverty, he cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? The same one that he had dwelt, he had dwelt with in this unapproachable light in perfect harmony. He said, why are you? Why have you turned your back? And so Jesus died on that cross and he had been rejected by the world. He had been forsaken by the Father. He was in a state of material and social and spiritual poverty in every aspect. It's so clear that Jesus was poor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. And so the journey that began at Christmas when Jesus left the, uh, as that, that hymn writer said, the sapphire paved courts of heaven for the stable floor, that journey led to the cross. And that great crisis of the of, of the heart at the heart of human existence is the crisis of sin and judgment that necessarily follows sin. So God, he, he made us in his image. We know this, right? But our first parents rejected God. We know the story in Genesis. We know about the fall. They broke their fellowship with him. And we have followed in their footsteps ever since. That's the story of humanity. That's the history of the world. And the Bible calls that sin. And we can't call it anything else because that's, that's really the, at the heart of, the, of our story. It renders us guilty before a holy God. And that holy God is our judge. And it calls for his judgment. And all of that would, would be extremely dark news, right? Right? if it were not for the gospel. And the wonder of the gospel is simply this, that on that first Christmas, the God of heaven in the person of his son became flesh 
and he became human. It's the story of the incarnation. He took on our frailty and he took on our guilt and he took on our spiritual poverty. And though he was innocent, he died the death that we deserve. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich. Yet for our sake, he became poor so that we might become rich. You see the progression? He was rich, he became poor, and he did it so that we could become rich. I feel like I, got, I just got to pause here. And, and I know that I, I bang this drum quite a bit. But I just want to make sure that we understand this. Because there are people in this world who take this verse vastly and wildly out of context. And they will read this verse. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. So that by his poverty you might become rich. Okay, so that's the only thing that they will pay attention to. That last line. And they will say, this verse is telling you that you're going to be healthy and you're going to be wealthy. Good for you. That's not what this verse is talking about. We cannot expect millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to be put into our bank accounts because we read 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. I'm sorry, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but that's the truth. This is not what this verse is talking about. They will say that, they, I mean, I'm, I'm being very vague, but the people that proclaim a message of worldly wealth through faith in this pseudo-Christ that really just cares about how much you have in your bank account, that's nonsense. And we can't believe it. Because we can't reconcile that idea with the date that... The fact that Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. There will be suffering. You will have to suffer for the sake of the gospel. They don't emphasize that verse very often. But it's true. It's something that we always need to recognize. Paul isn't talking here about gaining money and earthly riches through, through trusting in Jesus. That's not the offer, and that's not what the gospel is, is all about. No matter what preach, uh, no matter what some of those preachers will tell you, at the same time, hear me on this. Jesus does want you to be rich. That's what Paul is saying here. He came to earth as a man and he died on a cross in shame and torture and he became poor. In every sense of the word, he became that way so that through his poverty, you and me, we might become rich. So if that is true, and it's not talking about scratch or, or money or, or whatever it is that you want to use, if it's not talking about my bank account, then what is it talking about? Well, let me just suggest to you a, a couple of, of things. Let me suggest four, okay? Don't look at the clock. Uh, First, he wants us to be rich in spiritual terms. He wants us to be rich in spiritual terms. You and I, in our sin, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you are, you are so poor. I am so poor. I am morally and spiritually bankrupt. 
And that's our position. That's your position. And so we come to God with empty hands. We have nothing to offer him. There is nothing that we can say, hey, could you give me some of that salvation? I'll I'll give you some of this. We, We have nothing. We're bankrupt. We have an impossible debt to pay. We are deeply in the red. And so what takes place at the cross is this. Jesus undertakes this, um, he undertakes this great exchange. He takes upon himself my debt and he takes upon himself your debt. And he pays the full price for it. And even more wonderfully than, than that, he assigns to us the wealth of his account. So he takes our debt and then he gives us a whole bunch to cover that debt and then he shares what he has with us and so that when the father looks at his when the father looks at my spiritual bank account you know what he sees he doesn't see red he sees a balance of unspeakable wealth he sees a balance of perfect righteousness because now we are in Christ We stand before the Father, and if we are in Christ as those who are rich and not poor, we have to our credit the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the story of Christmas. And so that our new standing, and from this new standing, there's even more benefits than that. Just not not just the, 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 the credit of God's righteousness to us, but there's more than that. Another aspect of our riches, we are rich in family. I mean, we have a family here at West End, but a greater family, the universal church. Sin as a way, one of the worst things about sin is that it isolates us, right? It divides us because we're ashamed of it. And yet, that's what sin does all the time. That's what happened at, garden, at the Garden of Eden. That's what heart, happened at the, the Tower of Babel. Uh, it, that's what happened all the way through, and it happens in our lives at wealth. <laughs> but at Calvary, Jesus died entirely isolated, all on his own, and he did that in order that you and I might be accepted into the kingdom of God. And we would be welcomed to be part of his family. And so there is profound and um, there is profound significance and meaning in the gathering that we are doing here this morning. We are the gathering of the people of God. And a picture of the benefit and the achievement of the gospel. We are an illustration this morning of what Jesus did when he came to this world and he lived and died for us, we who were separated and divided and at enmity with with one another because of sin are now brought together through the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. So we gain a new family. Not only do we gain that, but, but there's another aspect to our riches. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Think about, think about the Psalms. Uh, just in Psalm 23, we can say with David, the Lord is my shepherd. 
He is my protector, right? Psalm Psalm 27, we can declare that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 28, we can say that the Lord is my strength and my shield. So we gain a protector. We gain a comforter. And then lastly, this. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that the believers might have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. And he says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Do you know, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about our inheritance. Our inheritance. That is another thing that makes us rich. It's, it's the promise of what is to come. Our glorious inheritance. We have been made co-heirs with Christ of the riches of God. And those riches are beyond counting. They're beyond reckoning. Uh, our, our time is just about gone. But let me just read to you Revelation chapter 21. Right at the end of the Bible. And here is what John describes our inheritance to be. The walls of that city were built of jasper. While the city was pure gold like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of that city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, agate, the fourth emerald, the the fifth onyx, and on and on and on it goes. It just keeps describing. It talks about the gates, these gates being 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was one pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, a transparent glass. I mean, we could just keep reading. But the point that I'm trying to make is this, West End people, you who are in Christ Jesus, if you know him, if you have trusted in him, let me tell you what is true of you today. You are rich. I don't care what your bank balance says. Sometimes when you go to the bank machine, it's a sad state of affairs. I get that. But even even then, you are rich. I don't care how much your bank account has or your real estate holdings or how much money is in your pension fund. You may be poor in the eyes of this present world. You may be struggling financially right now. You may be wondering how you are going to pay your bills. You have anxiety. You have embarrassment about your economic situation. I don't care about that because I'm telling you today you're rich. If you belong to Christ, you are immensely and spectacularly rich because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the spiritual reality for all who are in Christ. So here's my question as we close our service. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Have you understood this grace? Have you responded in a personal way and you received it? Because the Lord Jesus, who was rich beyond all splendor, he became poor and he did so for you. And he did it for me. That's the offer of the gospel. You can become rich to become a forgiven, restored child of God. 
But to receive this gift, you need to make your own response to Jesus. That's the first step. You need, you need to come to him with empty hands and you say, Lord, I, I'm bankrupt. I, I got nothing. Admit that you have nothing to your moral account except a string of bad debts. I mean, we desperately need forgiveness, don't we? And then we need to trust that Jesus is able to give us the riches that he promises in his, in his gospel, not the riches of a full bank account or a stock portfolio or anything like that, but rather the riches of forgiveness and a right standing before the Father. So in this season of giving and receiving, there's nothing better than you could do than to receive that gift. Sometimes people say it's better to give than receive. Well, in this instance, I'm just going to say it's completely the opposite. It's better to receive. The gift is out there. He paid the price for our forgiveness, Jesus did. He bought eternal life with us, with his, uh, for us with his blood. And he waits only for you to receive the gift. So, would you do that this Christmas? Would you receive the gift that he was only too eager to give? And for us who believe, it's so easy for us to feel sorry for ourselves for all kinds of reasons because of what's going on in our lives. We can feel hard done by, by those reasons. And they may be genuine. I'm, I'm not belittling them or, or making light of them. I, I don't want you to think that. But whatever the case, it is so good for us. In light, in, in spite of the things that are going on in our lives, it is so good for us to, and important for our soul to remember that the Lord Jesus has made us rich in something that is much more important than the things that we're going through right now. Through his poverty, he's given us such great gifts at such tremendous cost. Yes, the giving and the receiving of gifts at Christmas can descend into something just materialistic. I, I get that. We've probably seen it from time to time, but what I want us to what I want to encourage all of us today is to never forget and to turn our minds to that greatest gift of all, to remember what the Lord Jesus did to make us rich. The greatest gift ever given, the greatest gift ever received. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we really don't have the words to adequately say thank you. But we do give you the glory. We give you the praise this morning and we do thank you that you did not leave us here on our own. And we thank you, God, for your indescribable gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.